seated. If you've got your copy this morning of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. We have been walking through the book of Exodus in the year of 2019, and we find ourselves this morning in the latter half of the Ten Commandments. We've seen week in and week out how God made promises to His people Israel and then kept those promises by delivering them from their bondage through the plagues, the Passover, and the Red Sea. We've seen that God was faithful to sustain His people in the wilderness through manna from heaven and water from a rock. And then God enters into a covenant with His people Israel in Exodus 19 and 20 and the following chapters, telling them that if they will follow Him, if they will obey Him, if they will let Him be the King of their lives, then He will be for them and not against them. He will bless them and not curse them. And yet, if they choose to go their own way, if they choose to make their own rules and call their own shots and set their own agendas and refuse His commands, then instead, they will face the judgment of a holy and righteous God. This morning we are in the middle of the Ten Commandments and we've seen so far that God has talked to His people in the first three commandments about worshiping Him alone, reverencing Him with their worship and with their words. We saw in the fourth commandment that God called His people to live within the divine rhythm that He's created by living their life following the Sabbath principle of working and then resting. We've seen in the second half of the commandments, not just commands about loving God with all our heart, but loving our neighbor as ourself, in particular in the fifth, sixth, and seventh, honoring our parents, not murdering, and not committing adultery. God calling His people to have a right posture towards authority, to not be living lives of lust, and anger. Again and again we've seen that God cares more about our hearts than just our actions. And that we can break these commands in our hearts and in our motivations, even if we're not breaking them in our actions. This morning we come to the eighth commandment, which is short, only four words. It's in Exodus twenty fifteen, and it says simply, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. And as I've been doing with these commands, my hope in our time is to explain what that one verse means but also to try to answer the question, what does all the Bible tell us and command us about this topic of greed and stealing? So this sermon is titled, Greed, Theft, and the Generosity of God. And I want to point your attention to three truths this morning. The first being this. God calls His people, He tells us first, that we should not steal from our Neighbors. We should not steal from our neighbors. Neighbors means more than the people right next to you. Neighbors, according to the Bible, is all the people around us. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, and part of that loving of our neighbor is not stealing from them. The most obvious application of that command is something that we teach our kids from a young age. 
It's not right to take other people's toys, other people's belongings. I've heard the stories a million times about the child standing in the checkout line coveting the candy and the toys that are put there intentionally by the people who know that the kids will beg and the parents will give in. Parents have said no and they decide I'm going to take this for myself. I'm going to put it in my pocket. Nobody will know. But then, being foolish children, they get caught. Or maybe under conviction, they come and tell their parents through droopy eyes, I, I took this and the parent does what? Takes them back, makes them own up to their mistake, return it and ask forgiveness in order to teach their kids a lesson. That's a good and a right thing to do. It should be obvious to us that stealing someone else's possessions, their money, their land, or anything else is wrong. So often, when we read the Ten Commandments, we can get discouraged because we see how far short we've fallen of keeping these commands. We go down the list and we realize that in our actions, but especially in our hearts, we have really broken every one of these in different ways. But then we get to number eight and we think, ah, at least I'm not a thief. We, we breathe a sigh of relief and we think, I have never stolen. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm imperfect, but I'm not no thief. I've never taken something from someone else. Some will even self-righteously declare, I can't stand a thief. When they hear of something being taken from someone. But did you know that we can actually steal from others even if we don't take a physical possession of theirs? Think about time. Have you ever stolen time from an employer? I remember in my first job, outside of... uh, mowing and doing construction type stuff part-time as a teenager. My first job where I had to dress up and tuck my shirt in and and go in somewhere, I had an hourly job as a file boy at a doctor's office in Bryant, Arkansas, where I grew up. My job was to find patients' charts so that they would be on hand when the patient came in or the doctor needed it for a referral or whatever that would look like. So basically my job was to be a gopher and to go do what I was told to do. I would go all over the office, into the different doctor's offices, and into the file room. And there were times where they would come to me and they said, we need this file right now, and I would have to rush around to go find it because inevitably it hadn't been filed back in the right place. But 90% of my job was standing around being waiting to be told what to do. And as a 17, 18-year-old, I was bored out of my mind in this job. I liked the paycheck, but I hated the work. I needed something that would stimulate me more. And as a result of not liking this job and constantly watching the clock and being bored with lots of downtime, I made sure to take lots and lots of extra long bathroom breaks to go and sit on the toilet and look at sport magazines. Someone would come knock. Busy. Busy getting paid hourly. I was especially skilled at disappearing to go sit in the comfy doctor's chair in their own personal office because there were files on uh, their, their desk. So I could go in there and put my feet up 
and chill, and if someone came around the corner very quickly, I could lean up and just looking for a file. I would do this regularly and really felt no conviction about it, to be honest with you. That's not what they hired me to do. But I knew how to cut corners and pass the day without providing the benefit to the company that I was being paid to do. We laugh at the youthfulness and immaturity of something like that, and yet that is a form of stealing even if I never stole a file. I remember working at UPS. My job was to move boxes out of the back of the big, long 18-wheeler trucks and put them on the belt so they could be sorted out into the little brown trucks that you see driving around. As an employee there, I was, a, I was in the union. So constantly there were battles between who? The union and management. Management was on my hind end about needing to go faster so they could make their numbers look better. And my fellow union employees were on my hind end the other way saying, slow down, we don't get paid by the box, we get paid by the hour. Many of them, not all, but many, were making a lot of money because they'd been there for so long and they wanted me to go slow so they could take their extra trip to Disney. They wanted to drag the day out to make sure that they got extra wages for the same amount of work. What about when we ask someone to help us do something, but then when they show up, we aren't prepared when they arrive? Someone's willing to give up their valuable time, and yet we squander it by our lack of being prepared? What about the times in our days and weeks that should be set aside to be with our families or to be with our church family? There are people in our lives that we're called to care for and be committed to regularly, but so often we steal time from our family by being a workaholic. Or we steal time from our family by when we are home, we're too busy staring at a screen instead of being present. So often we steal time from our church family by not being around enough to know what's going on, not know the needs and the burdens that people have, the urgent prayers and the ways that you can serve. Moving away from the idea of stealing time, how often do students steal answers from others on tests and on homework? I've been a student long enough and also served as a teacher in different capacities that I'm well aware of how often... Kids, teenagers, college students will copy work, share answers, and take credit for work that they have not done. Friends, that is stealing. What about stealing content that others own? Like music, movies, even live streaming entertainment. Ashamedly, as a younger man, I shared a Netflix account that I had not paid for so that I could receive the services without... Paying the money. That is stealing. You can dress it up and make excuses about giving it to the man and overpricing and whatnot. It's stealing. In the last few years, I felt conviction because I had come across having access to television shows that had been downloaded for me that I did not buy. And I recognized as I read the Beatitudes that Philip preached on last week and the Ten Commandments that Moses gave, or God gave to Moses to give to Israel, that this was a form of stealing and that I needed to make that right. There's lots of different ways that we can steal. 
What about stealing from the government by claiming disability when we're really able to work? What about stealing from the government by not paying our taxes? What about requesting that people help you to do things that you could really do yourself? Is this not stealing from our neighbors? Friends, all of those and a million other examples are forms of stealing even if they don't involve taking someone's physical possession. Like all the other commands in God's law, when we get under the surface and we deal not just with the physical action but with the heart, we recognize that there are ways each and every one of us are guilty of breaking this command by stealing from our neighbors. But God's standard is higher than just not stealing from our neighbors. He calls us secondly to not steal from Him. We shouldn't steal from our neighbors and we shouldn't steal from God. Whether you know this or not, whether you've committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and to living for His glory, this is true of everyone in this room. God made you for His glory and His purposes, not for your own. And as our Creator, that means God has rights over us. God calls the shots on our lives. And what that means is this, all that you have is God's. All that you have is God's. Sure, you might have worked hard for it. But God gave you the ability and the time to work hard for it. All that we have is God's, and it is on loan to us. And God will hold us accountable for what we do with what He has given us. That body that you've got, that you walked in here with this morning, that's God's. So when we don't treat our bodies right, we're tampering with one of God's possessions. The ultimate reason that we should pursue a healthy lifestyle and avoid things that harm our health is not in order to look good in pictures. It's not to garner man's approval and to be attractive before others. But the reason that we should pursue physical health is because we want our bodies to hold up as long as God plans for them to hold up so that we can be used by Him for His glory and His purposes. Don't be healthy to win a beauty contest. Be healthy because God owns your body. And He wants you to live as long as He's ordained for you to live so you can live for His glory. God knows the day you were born. He knows the day that you will die. And all that time in between that God has allotted for you, that is His time that is on loan to you. How do you use your time? Much of our time is committed to working, sleeping. But what about the other time that we have? Friends, I'm not against entertainment. I think it's a gift from God to be enjoyed, and I regularly partake in entertaining myself. But friends, if you become a vegetable when you get home, who mindlessly is entertaining yourself to death, 
with TV shows and video games, but you can't find time in your busy schedule to worship with God's people, to cultivate your relationship with God through Bible reading and prayer, to witness to those lost neighbors in need of Jesus, to help that person in need, then you are squandering God's time on things that do not matter and things that will not last. Young men and women, God doesn't care about how good you are at Fortnite. He doesn't care at all about video games. At all. What He cares about. If you're a young man or woman who wants to live for Him and is committed to Him, what He cares about is that you're using that energy and that time and that talent that you have to love God and love others by pouring yourself out to serve them. It would be sad on Judgment Day when God asked, what did you do with the time that I had? And you said, look at my high score. Those who are retired, God doesn't care what happens on days of our lives this week. He doesn't care about the storyline and what's going to happen with Craig and Rebecca. He doesn't care about that scandalous story. He doesn't care. What he cares about is that you not waste the days that God has given you to live out your life on stuff that doesn't matter. I'm not saying don't watch TV. I'm saying make sure that you're serving the Lord. Looking for ways that you can serve Him and serve others. Are you a prayer warrior? Are you someone who is investing your time and energy and gifts for the kingdom to invest in other people? I pray that revival will break out in our church and in our community as a result of the elderly generation using the time God has allotted for them for His glory. Moms and dads, God doesn't care what's happening on your Facebook and Twitter feed when you get home in the evening. What He cares about is that you're present and that you're investing in your kids with the time God has given to you to invest in them. Our time is God's time. God owns our bodies. God owns our time. He also owns our talent. God has equipped each and every one of us in this room with different skills and abilities and talents. And He's done that. He's given us those things not so that we can just use them for ourselves and for our purposes and our agendas. He's given us those gifts and talents that He's hardwired into us so that we can use them for Him and His glory and His purposes. So if you can speak well, or if you can teach, or if you can sing, or if you can fix things, or if you can make a meal, or if your gift is that of organization and administration, if you have lots of mechanical know-how, God wants you to use it, not just to make a living, not just to serve your family, but to serve the kingdom of God, the local church, and our world. For Him, not for us. We must not sit on our giftedness and only use them to personally benefit ourselves. You know what's awesome as a pastor? As a pastor, you get a front row seat to see people use their talents and gifts for the gospel. There's a group of men in this church at Galleon 
who they know how to fix just about anything. And their pastor has no clue how to fix anything. So it works out well. There is a group of people in this church, a group of women in this church, who have instincts towards being hospitable, towards stepping in to people's needs. They can provide a meal and don't have to be asked to for someone in need. There are people in our church who know how to organize and plan things with excellence. There are people in our church who are willing and know how to motivate others to get in the game and do something for the kingdom. There's people in our church who have the gift of teaching the Bible and they're committed to doing it week in and week out. And while not everyone gets to see these things all the time, God sees it. God sees when people are using their talents that He's given them for Him, for His purposes, for His kingdom. But He also sees when we're so consumed with ourselves that we only use God's gifts for us and our agendas. God owns our bodies. God owns our time, God owns our talent, but God also owns our treasure and our money. That's right, I'm going to talk about money. Your bank account, your assets, your retirement plan, all that stuff is on loan to you and I from God. At the end of the Old Testament, the last book in our English Bibles is Malachi And that prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? His answer, in tithes and offerings. Friends, your money is God's. It's not your money even if you worked for it. It's not my money. It's not this church's money. It's God's money. And oftentimes when we think about money, we ask, how much do I have to give to God? How much does God require me to give to Him? Because we mistakenly assume that it's our money in the first place. We often will hold back from giving generously towards God and the kingdom because we need to invest that money into something else, something temporary. The world tells you that giving your money to God and to the church is a poor investment. And I'll be the first to say that there are people who will stand in pulpits in order to make prophets and they are peddlers of God's Word and they will tell you that God will give you more if you just give to them. Don't listen to people that say crap like that. Listen to people who tell you that it's not your money and it's not the church's money and it's not the pastor's money and they have no desire to get rich and wealthy on their own, and they're not using ministry as a means to have a big bank account, but instead they say, I'm willing to go die for the gospel. Because Jesus is my treasure, not a big bank account. There are people who will preach those kinds of false messages, but listen to me, friends, the Bible does teach that if we are a generous giver here in this life, that is not a bad investment. 
It is an eternal investment. Israel, God's people who are being commanded to not steal from God here, they're given in the law a command to give tithes and offerings throughout their calendar year. A tithe is 10% of what they brought in, but through the other offerings they were required to give, they would actually give over 20% of what they were given from God back to God each year. With the coming of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament, New Testament believers are not commanded to give a tithe. But instead, they are called to be generous, sacrificial givers. The implication being that because we have experienced so much more grace than Israel in the Old Testament, we should give back so much more. We shouldn't need a law for how much we give to the Lord because we should want to give to the Lord when we consider the grace and the mercy and the inheritance that is ours through Jesus Christ, the true and lasting treasure. So what happens in the book of Acts? The New Testament church is selling possessions, selling homes, selling lands. Why? To give the proceeds to God's people to meet the needs of those who legitimately had needs. Jesus talked about money more than anyone. Jesus taught that money is constantly competing with God for our affections and our desires. Jesus taught that if you want to know what someone loves... Follow the trail of their money. And I would argue that it's often the case today that we, as American Christians, lack the ability to depend on God and feel His nearness and trust in Him and not ourselves because we so often have far more than we need. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. A wise man is writing, and this is what he writes. God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. According to the Bible, having too little is a trial that can bring temptations. And having too much is a trial that can bring temptation. Friends, it's not my job to tell you how much money to invest in the kingdom. But something that's been helpful for me in wrestling with this for years is the principle that a tithe, 10%, should be the floor of our giving, not the ceiling of our giving. If we're giving generously and sacrificially, it will oftentimes mean that we have to say no to other good things because we are committed to making sacrifices for the kingdom as generous givers. We must each individually, with the Spirit's guidance and with submission to God's Word, seek the Lord to know how much He would have us to give and to ensure that what's said in Malachi 3 is not true of us, that we are robbing God of what is His. Our bodies, our time, our talent, our treasure, all of these things, according to the Bible, are God's. And they're on loan to us. And we are called to be good stewards of God's stuff. 
And we will be held accountable one day before God for what we did with what He has given to us. Part of the day of judgment will include God asking you what you did with the time He gave you. What you did with the talents and gifts. What you did with the treasure that He gave to you. What will you say on that day? Are there ways that you're robbing God? It's easy to sing, I surrender all. But surrendering all requires the rubber to hit the road in many ways. And if we're honest, every one of us in this room will recognize that in many ways we fall short of keeping this eighth command from God. In many ways we all steal from our neighbors and steal from God. And because of that, we must repent. We must go to the Holy One and for, who can forgive us and empower us. The only One who can forgive us and empower us, Jesus Christ. And that is the last and final and most important point of what the Bible says about the Eighth Commandment. And that is this. Thieves can become givers through grace. Thieves can become generous, sacrificial givers through grace. When we steal something from our neighbors, it's because we desire something more than we desire God, and we trust in something that God has made to satisfy us more than God will. When we steal from God, it's because we've made ourselves and not Him the center and the reference point for our lives. We forget that He owns it all. And we trust that what He's made will provide for us what we truly need and what we're truly after when what we truly need is Him. This is what's going on underneath the surface of breaking the Eighth Commandment to not steal. The Eighth Commandment is a negative one. It calls us to not do something. But as with all the other commands, we are not just called not to steal. We are called instead to be generous givers. Instead of being discontent with what God has provided, we are called to be content in times of plenty and in times of need. Instead of only taking from others and only taking from God, we are called to be those who generously pour ourselves out and pour our resources and our time and our talent out to serve and love others and God. This is Christianity 101. And the only way that we can keep that command and be that type of people is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has done what we can't do. Jesus never broke the eighth command. Jesus deserved the blessing of God for His perfect life, but He did what instead? He went to the cross of judgment to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, He found Himself in the company of who? Two thieves. 
Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes about these two men, that they were robbers, bandits, rabble-rousers, and thieves. And yet what happened? We know the story. One of these thieves who had committed his life to taking from other people turns to Jesus hanging on the cross in Luke 23, and he says, Jesus, we, the thieves, are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And righteous Jesus, who had never sinned, who had never stolen anything, did not turn to Him and say, I hate a thief! Go burn in hell! That's not what He said. What He said was, truly I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. On that day, in grace that is undeserved and at the cost of His own life and His own shed blood, Jesus Christ promised forgiveness of that thief's sins. He promised to him an inheritance that is far better than he could have ever gained by stealing everything this world has to offer. In that moment on the cross, Jesus offers this thief the empowerment to become a generous and sacrificial giver with his life. But the thief died on the cross. And he didn't have the opportunity to show the power of that gospel to empower him to be transformed into a giver. But unlike the thief hanging on the cross who soon after died, thieves like you and me have the opportunity today to show forth the power of the gospel to transform us from thieves into givers. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about what this transformed life looks like for the believer. And this is what he says. You have learned the new way in Christ. You have learned to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You have learned to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Then he says this, Therefore... Because of what Christ has done, because you believed in Him, because He's transformed you, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Every one of us has fallen short of God's perfect standard. Every one of us in many ways has broken the eighth commandment. Only Jesus has met God's standard. Only Jesus could pay the penalty for our sin and face the judgment of God that we deserve for our rebellion. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus did that. Because Jesus, as God the Son, has eternally existed. And instead 
of Jesus, God the Son, greedily staying enthroned in heaven. He submitted to the will of His Father in joy. He humbly stepped off the throne and He did what we couldn't do in order to save a people who don't deserve to be saved. In short, Jesus, instead of being greedy, was constantly a giver of grace to the undeserved. I can't say it better than Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He became for your sake poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about big bank accounts and big houses and all the things. He's talking about becoming rich in the treasure and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Friends, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. You can't do it. And when we hear commands to give our time and our talent and our treasure to the Lord, and we think, God can't really expect me to give that much to Him, we need only to look to the hill of Golgotha where the Son of God hangs slain. Why? For you and for me. We can't outgive our Savior Jesus. And through Jesus' gift of grace, He turns to you and to me this morning and He offers us forgiveness for our greedy hearts, forgiveness for our idolatry, where we love God replacements more than God. He offers us forgiveness for our robbing of God by keeping what He's given to us for ourselves. Through the grace of Jesus Christ this morning, He turns to you and to I, and He offers us the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of a new heart to be transformed and empowered from this point forward. It's through Christ alone that the thief can be transformed. It's through Christ alone that the greedy can become a generous giver of His time, talent, and treasure. Things that were all God's in the first place. Friends, as we close this morning, my prayer is that the Word of God has done for you what it's done for me this week. Cut you with conviction and then built you back up with the hope of the Gospel. The grace of God is greater than all of our sin. And my prayer as we close this morning is that we will reflect on His goodness and His grace. That we will repent of our sin and our greed and our theft. That we will remember His gospel of hope and forgiveness and transformation. And that we will respond to Him and His Word as the Spirit of God leads us. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. God, every one of us falls short of Your standard and Your glory. God, so often today, 
we come to church and we merely want to have our ears tickled. We merely want a religious experience. But God, You want us to be a humble people who are broken over our sin and yet are hopeful because of the gospel of grace. God, I pray this morning that Your Word will afflict the comfortable, but will comfort the afflicted. I pray, God, that Your Word will help us to lean on You and depend on You. We pray, God, that whether we be in poverty or riches, Lord, that neither of those things will lead us to trust in things. But God, You will give us the power of the Gospel to recognize that You are the true treasure. That You call us to live for You and Your glory and Your kingdom. God, help our agenda to match Your agenda. Help our will to match Your will. God, help us in humility to repent, to believe the Gospel, to be broken by it, but to be built up by it as well. I pray, God, now that You'll lead us to respond as Your Spirit leads. God, we need You. We need Your power. We need Your grace. Help us to trust You. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.